Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Professor Jorge G. Castaneda, who is the Global Distinguished Professor of Politics and Latin American and Caribbean Studies at New York University and formerly the Foreign Minister of Mexico between 2000 and 2003, and certainly one of uh, the most distinguished experts on Latin America and its struggles to establish democracy over the recent decades. We are focused here on the prospects for the political center, and when we focus on that, we definitely don't mean to confine the discussion to the United States, but certainly globally, and an area that's often neglected in that conversation about democracy and consensus is our Western Hemisphere and Latin America in particular. And so uh, there's been a lot in the news lately on that subject, the insurrection or attempted insurrection at Brasilia on January 8th. Uh, There's political violence in Peru at the moment, Mexico, uh, seems to have its democratic institutions very much in play, having recently reestablished those. And so Professor Castaneda is the perfect guest for a moment like this. I might add that he writes frequently on these subjects for Project Syndicate. And of course, he's the author of many books, uh, too many to mention here, but the most recent has the intriguing title of America through Foreign Eyes. It was published in 2020. He's also written a biography of Che Guevara and a history of the Latin American left. Um, he is very much, uh, he has a foot on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, metaphorically and in a way, literally speaking, because he teaches at NYU and has for many years, but is uh, writes a lot in Spanish and is still deeply interested and involved in his own country's politics. So we're hoping to see uh, Latin America today through the eyes of a Latin American who understands how Americans uh, view that part of the world as well. So Professor Castaneda, with that introduction, thank you very much for being on Times Like These. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be able to share some thoughts with you, uh, your audience, on uh, these uh, momentous times uh, in several Latin American countries today as the region's young democracies, some older than others, of course, uh, are perhaps under siege or threatened. Well, on that note, I have been one, True Confessions, who is a little bit of a cup half full, a stubborn optimist about Latin American democracy, uh, even right up to very recent months, on the theory that for all the struggle and polarization and noise, the basic systems had held. There had not been a military coup anywhere. Major insurgencies had not broken out. And of course, we're going to bracket an exception for the true dictatorships like Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. But that uh, optimistic posture is becoming more difficult to maintain in the wake of what happened on January 8th in Brazil, which is probably familiar to our listeners. What is your assessment, both of kind of the internal meaning for Brazil of that event and its wider kind of regional repercussion? Well, I I think there's several aspects that must be taken into account. The first 
obvious one is the copycat uh, phenomenon. This um, um, attempt to take over or actually take over for a few hours of the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidential offices, let's say, uh, executive office building, the equivalent in Washington, D.C., um, in Brasilia by these pro-Bolsonaro um, <clears throat> crowds who reject the election results from last November and who consider President Lula to have fraudulently won the election and former President Bolsonaro to have won the election clearly looks a great deal like what happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Given the connection between uh, Trump and Bolsonaro, between his aides, his advisors, and Bolsonaro's advisors, particularly the case of Steve Bannon, uh, and given many of the uh, <clears throat> slogans and attitudes and conduct of the people in Brasilia, there is clearly a copycat phenomenon. And this is up to a point new because although the United States has, of course, over the years, um, over the centuries, uh, played a very significant role in Latin American politics and all, not always a very pro-democratic one, something like this had never really occurred. So that's a first aspect of this. A second one is the actual uh, events on January 8th and the complicity by a significant part of the Brazilian capital security forces or the people in charge of them, ranging from the president, President Lula's personal sort of secret service, let's call it that, I, the exact term in Portuguese, I, I, I don't remember it right now, but he has continued to fire or relocate um, many of the people who were in his own personal detail or security detail. I think he's relocated 40 or 50 of them so far. But in addition to that, the head of security in Brasilia has been fired, and the uh, governor, the, for, the former governor of Brasilia, federal district, has also been now charged with sedition. So there was a great deal of complicity with the rioters, with the protesters, on the part of the Brasilia security machinery, which is partly the army, partly the federal police, uh, partly uh, other security forces. And this extends up to a point to the armed forces in general in Brazil, which is why President Lula has been meeting with them over the last few days, trying to reach a clear understanding, because it's important for those who are listening to us to remember that during the uh, a month or so between the election, the second, the runoff in the election and Lula's inauguration, there were huge Bolsonarista crowds camped outside of military barracks all over the country, calling on the military to stage a coup and over, overturn the results of the election. The military didn't do this, and that's a very good sign. But clearly, there are sympathizers within the military for this kind of attitude. So that's a second big problem, bigger than the first one, uh, the one, the copycat thing. And the third big problem or factor 
is that uh, these people, the rioters, the protesters, the people asking for the military to intervene, all of these people are some represent something like half of the electorate, not just the half that voted for Bolsonaro, but close to half who do not believe that Lula won. I know it sounds mm. familiar. <laughs> and if it sounds familiar, it should sound familiar. Except that, let's say, in the United States, maybe that's 60 or 70% of the 40% who voted for Trump. In Brazil, it's 70, 80% of the 49% who voted for Bolsonaro. Mm. And with a democracy which is much younger and less robust. That's a fact of life. So if you put all of this stuff together, I think Brazil and Lula in particular are facing an enormous challenge, uh, which I, I hope they can surmount. I think they will. But this is a challenge we hadn't seen before in Brazil or in Latin America, for that matter, for, for a long time. So the essence of Brazil's crisis, as you alluded to it, is this sharp duality, if you like, or this 50-50 split in the country. Uh, between those who supported Bolsonaro and those who supported Lula. And I think it's important for people to understand that a lot of the people who supported Lula did so much less out of enthusiasm for him than out of rejection of Bolsonaro, because Lula, unfortunately, has a kind of a tainted history of his own, that he was convicted of corruption. And uh, so there are a lot of questions surrounding Lula, which which leads me to my next question, which is, this is a very, very delicate passage that he has to navigate here. He has to hold the country together, not yield on anything constitutional to these uh, violent rioters. And yet his own basis of legitimacy is relatively narrow. Absolutely. But I, I would point out that it's perhaps a, even a bit worse than what you describe, which is pretty bad <laughs> in the sense that, you know, the country being divided in two is not new to Brazil and not new to other countries, including the United States. Um, Brazil is a country that has impeached uh, two presidents in the uh, nearly 40 years of its democratic rule, uh, which doesn't happen everywhere all the time. Uh, and almost all of the elections, with a couple of exceptions, have been won by very narrow margins and in very polarized elections. The difference this time is that the losers don't think they lost. Uh, when uh, Lula defeated uh, the Social Democratic candidates in 2002 and 2006, or when Fernando Enrique Cardoso defeated Lula in 1994 and 1998, um, there was no discussion as to who won. Um, it was clear that the winners had won and the losers accepted their defeat, full stop. That's not the case now. But in addition to not being the case in public opinion at large, in the electorate, let's say, there seems to be, as I said, very significant complicity of disbelieving or rejecting the electoral results in the military in part of the Brazilian uh, business sector, particularly the agribusiness sector, which is very powerful and very Bolsonarista. So there is a qualitative difference, it seems to me, between this crisis and 
previous elections, which have been polarized also, but very differently. Now, this is what Dila Lula has to deal with. This is his problem. And as you say, because of his narrow victory, because of his own uh, weaknesses, for the reasons you pointed out quite rightly, uh, this is a particularly complicated challenge for him. And let's not forget, he's 77. Now, there are a lot of leaders in the world of that age or even somewhat older, as we know. That, of course, is not detract from their talent, their intelligence, their capability, but it, it is a factor. For example, it, it certainly means that he has a certain lame duck character to him because it does not seem uh, likely or even realistic to expect, expect him to run again. Just doesn't look like it. So, Inevitably, there are people thinking about uh, 2026 as we speak. Well, I want to uh, drill down a little bit on that point, the sort of transitional or future aspect of this. Um, you know, just to add to his woes, notwithstanding the fact that Bolsonaro was defeated for president, a lot of his uh, supporters won seats in Congress. And so Lula, uh, was not facing um, uh, a friendly Congress to get through, even if none of this violence had happened. There's been a lot of focus, including in our own commentary here in the U.S., on the need to punish the people who carried this out as a sort of deterrent and a kind of backward-looking form of accountability. And I think that's obviously part of the solution. But tell us specifically what elements there might be for something sort of more constructive going forward in terms of either political uh, outreach that he could still make or structural reforms? Or do you think that that is all kind of unrealistic? I wouldn't say it's unrealistic. I mean, he has to deal with the Bolsonarista pluralities in both houses of Congress and with the fact that the governors of the three largest states in Brazil, Sao Paulo, Minas Gerais, Rio de Janeiro, uh, are uh, bolsonaristas. But they are not uh, radical bolsonaristas. He, uh, Lula has already met with the governor of Sao Paulo in his office in Brasilia and uh, has reached out to uh, Bolsonaro people in both houses of Congress on issues like tax reform, on spending limits, etc., And so uh, I think that he's doing all the right things uh, in the sense that he's trying if not to broaden his coalition to include Bolsonaristas, at least to neutralize the less radical Bolsonaristas uh, in the Congress and in the governorships. And I think he can be successful in that regard because many of these people do not want to become insurrectionists. They don't want to join the people who stormed uh, the Congress because they're part of the Congress. It makes sense for those people to try and reach some kind of understanding uh, with, with Luda. Um, the, the issue, the more complicated issue here, here are the people, let's put it in those terms, and the military and how involved the military were in all this. And that's where the punishment issue comes in back to the fore. You know, there's more than a thousand people in jail right now uh, in Brasilia of the, among the rioters. That's a, that's a lot of people. 
Um, and thousand people who were not who are not accustomed to being in prison in Brazil, which is not a nice place to be in prison in. There are better places. And um, I think that the question of how high up the complicity among the security machinery goes is going to be very complicated for Lula because that's a different ballgame. Yeah, they have the power uh, to make things very uncomfortable if they are so inclined. With the military, I think it is enormously important for the United States, the United States military also, that has very close links, has had very close links to the Brazilian military for decades. Perhaps a bit less close under the Lula presidentships and Dilma Rousseff's presidency than before or after. But nonetheless, a lot of that relationship remains very important, I think, for the U.S., for President Biden and the U.S. military to be in you know, confidential, clear-cut touch with the Brazilian military, you know, telling them not to fool around with this stuff. Now, I wanted to shift gears slightly to, to try to situate this Brazilian crisis, and we're going to talk about some other countries too, if we have time, in sort of a wider context. And, and let me tell you what I had in mind. You know, uh, it's not just Brazil that is experiencing this sort of extreme polarization and collapse of uh, sort of establishment politics and centrist politics. It's happening in a number of other Latin American countries in different forms. And you might even say globally across uh, what is broadly considered the Western or democratic world of which Latin America is very much a part. Do you agree that this, uh, with essentially with what I just postulated and mm -hmm. if so, what, what do you consider to be the, the basic, the basic cause unique to Latin America of this sort of centrist vacuum that's come upon them or this establishment vacuum that's come upon them so suddenly? Well, I, I think it has two causes, two underlying roots, which make it somewhat different from what, for example, what we've been seeing in Europe, countries like Hungary and up to a point in Poland, or what we may be seeing in a few other or in a few Asian countries or <coughs> Arab countries, perhaps not the Arab ones, that's similar, which is that it, in Latin America, uh, because you have, in many cases, very young democracies or democracies that, it exi that existed as elite democracy way back early in the 20th century, uh, but then were interrupted by more or less long periods of military rule, but still young democracies in that sense. Um, people, I guess understandably, one can discuss this, expected the advent of democratic rule to bring with it a significant improvement in their living standards, in jobs, wages, health, education, security, housing, and go on and on and on and on and on. And this was never a realistic uh, hope. It never made much sense. That's not what democracy does for you, at least not in the short and medium term. It allows you to peacefully get rid of governments that don't deliver the goods, but it doesn't necessarily allow you to get yourself governments that do deliver the goods. It doesn't just depend on that. It depends on a whole bunch of things, 
which are not necessarily in the hands of democratic rulers. And it must be said that with a couple of exceptions, the results of the last, let's say, 30 odd years, some cases 40, Argentina, Brazil, 35, 40 years of democratic rule, and in many cases of uh, <clears throat> market-oriented macroeconomic policies, uh, the results are just not very uh, encouraging. They're not there. There are exceptions, Chile for a while, Peru actually for a while. Um, but the peoples of Latin America, so to speak, are barking up the wrong tree, understandably, because partly the only tree in town, and secondly, <laughs> because, well, it makes sense in a way. If you're not, if you haven't had the democratic education that Western Europe, the United States, and other regions have had over the last 200 years, then you expect things of democratic rule which you shouldn't be expecting. And so the discontent with the economic and social and security results spills over automatically to the to democratic rule itself. And that is a huge problem because uh, it's very difficult to convince them. You say, well, wait a minute, you told us that if we had elections and we had a free press and we had a Congress and we had this and we had that, then I would have uh, you know, uh, better schools for my kids. And, you know, it's hard to say, well, I actually didn't mean that. Uh, you misunderstood me. <laughs> Complicated. So let's turn to your home country, Mexico, which is certainly a case study of a place that had decades of uh, non-democratic politics and then amid great hope, uh, and you were part of it in 2000, uh, transition to um, a democratic, multi-party, truly competitive political system. And now we are seeing that the populist, the left-wing populist president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is starting to make a series of moves against the kind of, or challenging, I should say, the kind of democratic infrastructure of the country, the uh, election board in particular that had been considered pillars of this new democratic order. And this is causing a, a great deal of concern both inside Mexico and, and elsewhere that the country is uh, dangerously backsliding. I, I assume you are you share that concern. I just wonder how how critical you think it is or whether there is an opportunity and there has been pushback from both civil society and certain elements in Congress to sort of manage this without a breakdown. Well, I, I certainly share uh, your analysis of what is happening, and I share your concern and the concern of many people in Mexico and in, in the United States and in Washington in particular, although unfortunately it doesn't seem to be the case of the Biden administration or the National Security Council or the State Department. But, well, we can come back to that maybe. Uh, I think that there is a real threat to uh, Mexico's very young democracy. If you want to be, you know, a tiny bit uh, strict uh, about the issue, the election in the year 2000 was Mexico's first democratic competitive presidential election. 94 was not really so, and 19... Uh, 11 wasn't either because there was only one candidate, and that's it. 
there hasn't, there's no more. So this is a very, very uh, young and uh, fragile democracy, and Lopez Obrador is going after it. Now, what he is doing is uh, phrasing this in a narrative which is somewhat different from what the way you and I would see it. What he is saying is that the proof that he that Mexico's current political system or regime is not democratic is that it did not deliver the economic and social goods that people expected. In other words, the fact that um, average economic growth, let's say from 1994, from NAFTA onward at President Cedillo's election, has been 2% per year over the last now almost 30 years, and that there is as much poverty and inequality and everything in Mexico as there was before or beginning of this period, and there is more violence, and uh, there is the uh, same levels of immigration to the United States, and education is as lousy as it was before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, that's proof of the undemocratic nature of Mexico's so-called democratic institutions. So we have to change them, not because they are democratic and I don't like democracy, let's say uh, Orban in Hungary. No, it's because they're not democratic. I'm going to make them really democratic and then they will deliver the goods. So he is playing on this fallacy that people in Mexico think, which is that democracy is meant to get you improved, to improve your healthcare system. No, it could allow you to elect a president and a Congress that has a platform that has a reasonable policy for uh, improving healthcare and tax reform to pay for it. But overnight, you're not going to get a better doctor because you elected a president instead of appointing the president like we did before. And that's where the more dangerous part in Mexico lies. I think. Well, you know, it, in addition, there is an election denial uh, narrative involved in this, uh, as I'm sure you're well aware. Absolutely. Uh, president Lopez Obrador is still stewing over his claim that he was somehow cheated out of the election uh, of an, an election victory in 2006, I believe it was. Yes. And he is invoking that purported experience uh, as, a, as, a, as a rationale for reordering these election judgment institutions uh, that are, by common um, view, actually are doing a pretty good and independent job, but he has a sort of a personal axe to grind against them. And so in that sense, in he, he's not just, as you say, uh, mounting a kind of substantive attack on Mexico's new democracy, but he's, he's got a procedural case he's prosecuting as well. Both, absolutely. And he does it with the same kind of anger and resentment and rabble-rousing rhetoric uh, that he uses for other challenges that he faces. He really wants to uh, get himself a new set of electoral institutions for the 2024 election that he uh, can stack and control and ensure through them that the result of the 2024 election will be the ones he wants. Now, this says two things. First of all, it says that he's kind of worried about the outcome. He's not as self-confident as pe many people in Mexico believe, firstly. And secondly, that this is not a very democratic character here that we have. 
Um, the, the real question for growing number of Mexicans as the elections draw near, we know they're in June of 2024, it's less than a year and a half away now, uh, is what will happen if the opposition unites behind a single uh, impressive candidate and wins by 500,000 votes, a million votes. Right. Mexico is a country of 130 million inhabitants. We have electoral rolls about 95 million, 98 million, and something like 65 million people will vote. What happens if the opposition wins the presidency by a million votes? Will he accept the results? Will he try to overturn them like Bolsonaro? Will the army who he has cuddled and seduced and corrupted uh, go along with him? Or will it be at the end of the day institutional like the military in Brazil? Uh, what's going to happen? And what is the United States going to do? Because it's one thing, you know, Brazil, Brazil, it's a million miles away. It's a different kettle of fish. What will the United States do with this kind of challenge on its border? Well, I'm, I'm glad you uh, provided that excellent segue into what was going to be my next question. Uh, you had some free advice for the Biden administration about Brazil. I think a concern people might have is that there are so many uh, other interests the United States has in Mexico. Migration being front and center. You have fentanyl. You have a number of other what you might call um, security-related and economic, we haven't even talked about the whole trade aspect of this, um, related interests, that Lopez Obrador, by showing a certain kind of cooperation, could leverage into a kind of indulgence on this uh, democratic side of the issue agenda. That, of course, as you well are aware, is an old trick of uh, non-democratic political figures, not just in Latin America, but around the world. And with that in mind, what, how do you think Washington ought to be playing this? I don't like the way the Biden administration has played it so far, at least in public. Obviously, I'm not privy to the private conversations that President Biden may have had on different occasions with President López Obrador or other uh, or higher senior American officials with senior Mexican officials. I don't know. I just know what's public. And what's public is that President Biden, who brings up the issue of dichotomy between or the struggle between democracies and autocracies every other day, and rightly so, very uh, supportive of that, he never brings it up with Mexico. Senator Bob Menendez, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, brings it up in letters once a week, practically. <laughs> but he's the only one, really, who does. Secretary of State Lincoln doesn't, uh, NSC uh, uh, advisor Sullivan doesn't, and uh, they were all here in Mexico last week, and not one, uh, there was not a single mention titled this Electoral Institute issue of the attacks on intellectuals and journalists in Mexico, on the uh, attempt to stack the Supreme Court by López Obrador. None of that was mentioned by any of the Biden people. Now, I know their rationale, uh, there's no, uh, there are other ways to contain and convince Lopez Obrador not to do that other than a war of words. Maybe, although I, I think I know Lopez Obrador well enough to, to think that he, um, he's not interested in what people say to him privately. He just dismisses it as insignificant, as meaningless. And I certainly think that's what he does with Biden's 
hypothetical comments on these issues. I think the United States should not make an exception of Mexico, and the Biden administration should not make an exception of Mexico. It should be as forceful with Mexico as it is with other countries. Obviously, knowing that Mexico is complicated. Yeah, Mexico is complicated. Israel is complicated. I just read a few days back a piece by Tom Friedman in the New York Times about what Biden should do about Netanyahu's new extreme right-wing government. And it's his attacks on the Supreme Court. Sound familiar? Yeah. And Friedman is not exactly, you know, a, a radical left-wing pro-Palestinian cr critic of, uh, of Israel. He's extremely sympathetic, rightly or wrongly. That's what he is. It makes, made a lot of sense, his piece about why Biden should not just countenance everything that Netanyahu is doing. Well, the same is true for Mexico. Why? Yes, there is a migration issue. And yes, Lopez Obrador can open and close the valve and make life more or less miserable for Biden on migration or immigration if he wants to and if he gets upset at Biden. Yes. But Biden can come back with stuff. There are rumors to the effect, uh, for example, that given the trade dispute between the two countries and with Canada also, that the Treasury people in Washington have contemplated, considered the possibility of beginning to investigate the um, businesses, the companies, institutions that transfer $50 billion of remittances to Mexico because they believe, or they're said to believe, and many people in Mexico believe, that in, that in that huge amount of remittances that have grown enormously over the past five years, there's an, a lot of money laundering. Now, that is a, a, an instrument that Lopez Obrador cannot deal with. If, if Juan's mother in Taracuaro, Mituacan, doesn't receive her check this week, and then she doesn't get it next week, and next month, and the third month, Lopez Obrador has a hell of a problem on his hands. So it's not that the United States is, you know, armless, legless, weaponless, everything, defenseless, if Lopez Obrador wants to play the immigration card like Fidel Castro did for 50 years or 60 years, and like Raul Castro and the Escanel are doing now with Cuban, the Cuban exodus to the United States. Uh, the United States has ways of responding to that. Uh, they're not nice ways, but it's not nice either to use people as a weapon, which is what the Cubans do and what Lopez Obrador purportedly could do. So I want to move back to South America for a moment. You mentioned in passing the situation in Peru. Uh, just to fill folks in, they're basically the left-wing president, uh, Castillo of Peru in December, attempted essentially to dissolve Congress and seize power on his own, whereupon Congress impeached him and He's been charged with uh, various uh, political offenses related to that. And people supporting him in the rural and mountainous parts of Peru have uh, embarked on a number of demonstrations, protests, seizures of public offices, some of which have been suppressed by the military or police, and there's been loss of life. You know, part of what is so, sort of poignant about that is that, as you mentioned, Professor Castaneda, Peru had been a bit of a success story. It is one of the places where the open market, open economy, uh, free trade model had really had produced 
benefits that were widely distributed, never sufficiently to be sure. And there was tremendous poverty in Peru, but there had been some real material gain. And yet for some reason, the political system has remained very, very fragmented and fractious and now might even be at the brink of something resembling civil war. I wonder if you could sort of reflect on that crisis for a moment, particularly because it does seem to be a kind of growingly transnational crisis. The Bolivian president, uh, Evo Morales, is encouraging these uprisings. The president of Mexico has weighed in on behalf of the ousted president as well. Tell us a little bit about what you you divine out of all those developments. Well, I'll be glad to share some thoughts about this with you, but with the understanding that it's a very fast-moving situation and a very confusing one, not because uh, there's any kind of opacity involved, opaqueness. I mean, it's a very open country, and Peruvian press and foreign press are reporting on it accurately, very professionally. But there's a lot of confusing stuff going on, so... Uh, I, I would, whatever I say should be really taken with a grain of salt. Firstly, yes, in macro numbers, Peru has the best economic performance of Latin America over the last 20 years, with the possible exceptions of Panama and the Dominican Republic. So for a large country, it's an impressive performance. But where the distribution that should be done, like we were saying before, uh, through a certain ser- a series of institutional mechanisms that make this work over time, that did not happen. There's a significant reduction in poverty, not in inequality, and not in the sort of segregation of Peruvian society, the famous three chapters or three parts of the country, the coast, the mountains, and the jungle. So there's that aspect. Then there is a very specific Peruvian component to this which is that Peru is the only country that has a hybrid regime in Latin America. Every other country, except for the former British Caribbean, has an American-type presidential system. You have a president, you have a Congress, you have a judicial branch, and the separation of powers, etc. Peru has a kind of French hybrid system where you have a president elected by universal suffrage, but... You also, he has to appoint a prime minister who has to be ratified, approved, whatever, by Congress, which is elected separately. So it's this hybrid French system, um, which has worked very well for France since 1958, uh, General de Gaulle, but uh, has not worked great for Peru. They've had six presidents in the last five years. They basically like to overthrow their presidents or drive them to suicide. So. This is a complicated aspect, which is specifically Peruvian. Uh, and then there is issue that there are still remnants of very radical groups in the Peruvian left. It never, it never really uh, had its, what the Italians call an aggiornamento or a sort of modernization, um, like the Chilean left did, like the Brazilian left did. Uh, like the Uruguayan left did, et cetera. Uh, you either have APRA and Alan Garcia, you know, can't really refer to them as the left. You haven't been able for many, many years. And then you have a lot of very radical groups in the southern Andean 
regions, some in the slums around Lima, uh, with people who come from the Andean regions. I wouldn't at all consider them to be followers of the Shining Path or anything like that. But that's part of a strange kind of left we haven't seen too much in Latin America. They identified with Pedro Castillo when he ran in the first round of elections and got only 18%, which is not exactly a mandate. And then in the second round, the runoff, when he won by a very small margin, though apparently the election was clean and that was an end of stories. But the party that he ran on, the current vice president ran with him on his ticket, uh, many of the members of his first cabinets come from those somewhat radical groups that don't really exist in a bunch of other Latin American countries. And once he was impeached by Congress through a constitutional process, which was provoked by his trying to dissolve Congress and call for new elections, which is not constitutional, these groups have coalesced with a bunch of social demands, which are in many cases very legitimate, after, remember, that Peru has the worst pandemic response in the world in terms of excess deaths per capita. The worst in the world. Significantly worse. So there's an enormous amount of social grievances there that came together with this crisis, which is partly a product of this hybrid system. And all of that has now led to a mass movement which could become insurrectional, to force the resignation of the current president, Boluarte, uh, who was Pedro Castillo's vice president, and force new elections, which are already scheduled for April of 24. They want to have them practically next week. And thirdly, have a constituent assembly, which might be able to do away with the hybrid system, which in Peru doesn't work, but God knows what else it would want to do for example, if you look at what happened next door in Chile with the attempt to draft a new constitution as a result from, of pressure from the streets, put it that way. Well, it's, as you say, it is a very fluid situation. And the next comment I'm about to make may have expired by the time we, we actually uh, go live with this podcast. But one of the fortunate aspects of the otherwise very unfortunate Peruvian situation has been the uh, military's uh, willingness uh, to stay out of it in any, um, in terms of actually seizing power for itself. They've obviously been involved in the suppression of some of these demonstrations. And that leads me to my, my final point that I want to bring up with you in the time we have left, which is to kind of go back to the high level picture uh, of the region as a whole, where I sort of articulated my reasons why I at least used to be an optimist about it. I think in all of this, it's been extraordinary, Professor Castaneda, that the military, there have been no uh, overt military coups. I might have missed one, but there have been a number of cases in which, for example, as you said, a a somewhat undemocratically minded president starts to try to draw the military into the government. That would be the case of Mexico, as we were discussing. There might be, an, there might be an, uh, a situation where a dictator kind of teams up with the military, as in it's going on in El Salvador and, you might argue, Nicaragua. But those are relatively small and very kind of special cases. 
But broadly speaking, the military do seem to have remained professional throughout the large countries of South America. And I wonder if, first of all, if you agree that that's an optimistic element of this situation, and if so, what accounts for it and what might be done to sort of maintain it? Well, the, the, there, one could point to two exceptions, which are both relative. One is overthrowing of Mel Celaya in Honduras in 2010, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but again, with the idea that he had, he was illegally seeking to get reelected, to be reelected, and the military threw him out as a result of that attempt of his, which was illegal also. And then the situation of Evo Morales in Bolivia three years ago, uh, where he ran for re-election illegally, and then, according to most people, tried to steal the election, and the military suggested that he step aside, and a lot of people considered that to be a military coup. Others say it's not really so. But with those two exceptions, let's say the last 30, 40 years since the advent of democracy in most of Latin America, there haven't been any of these coups, and that's a remarkable record. I agree with you absolutely, and it's something that we should all be very, in Latin America, we should be proud of and very happy with. And I think that that's very important to maintain that record. Now, is the temptation growing? Well, we saw, as you mentioned, Lopez Obrador bringing the army in to govern with him, and Bolsonaro brought in more than 6,000 military officers into government in important jobs, including the vice presidency and the chief of staff of the presidency. So you have that issue, the civilian governments inviting the military into government. Uh, that clearly happened in those two countries, and these are the two largest countries in Latin America by far. There's that problem. There's that risk, let's say, that danger. And then there's a danger of chaos where... You know, you might end up with a situation, for example, in Peru, now that you mentioned it, uh, where there may not be any choice anymore at some point, if everything gets out of control, for the military to step in, which would be terribly unfortunate for everybody, but mainly for the Peruvian people um, and for Peruvian democracy. Uh, but if chaos gets out of control, if you really have that kind of a problem, uh, it's not impossible that this could happen for the first time, as I say, many, many years now, because yes, for a whole bunch of reasons, the military in practically every Latin American country has stayed out of, I would say, politics, out of government. And that's been a very good thing. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Professor Castaneda, for ranging so widely and yet at the same time so succinctly and with such... Uh, eloquence over so much subject matter on this podcast. Just, I don't fear any disagreement with what I'm about to say, which is that for those of us Americans anyway, who've been following the course of democracy in Latin America for the last three or four decades, there's a lot at stake here. I am a former correspondent in that region. And I'm well aware of the tremendous sacrifices and struggles that people committed to establishing these institutions and how historically um, progressive they are in the most neutral sense of progressive, right? What a historical advancement it represented for the region. And it is a matter of great concern that they might be 
in some way reversed and join this sort of illiberal tide that's uh, unfortunately been growing around the world. But I think it's crucial to the effort to kind of maintain and sustain those systems that we understand what's going on and we understand what's at stake, which is why I'm so pleased that you took the time to help us understand them. And so once again, thank you very much, Jorge Castaneda, for being our guest on Times Like These. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation a great deal, and I hope it uh, helps to have uh, people in the United States pay attention to what's going on in Latin America and try and uh, understand some of the nuances and subtleties of a region fascinating precisely because of these nuances and subtleties. So uh, thanks again for having me.